Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. This is Joe Gary. Thanks for joining me. You know, I think everyone listening here could read a 40-page book, right? So make a note, go to Amazon, and order something called From Good to Great in the Social Sector by Jim Collins. It's short, 40 pages, and it packs a punch. The first punch it packs is this one. Get the right people on the bus. But how? Small organizations can't afford headhunters, or, or, or can they? Large organizations can be skeptical. Isn't my next senior person already in the organization's family? So I work with a lot of organizations in leadership transitions and have made my own skeptical comments about recruitment firms, and I've also advocated for them. Last, uh, two, I think two weeks ago, I wrote a piece on my blog at JoanGary.com with two R's about hiring a great ED. My guest today, I think, actually disagreed with some of the points I made and emailed to tell me so. So I said, you have to come on my podcast. Now, while I don't like to be proven long, I do believe that my listeners should hear from the experts, and that's why I have this podcast. And today we have one. Join me in welcoming Marilyn Makowitz. Marilyn is the principal at Makowitz Consultants a recruitment firm that has a particular strength in filling both program and non-program jobs for leading foundations, also works with board-level search committees seeking CEOs. Marilyn's shop is boutique, small, best of breed. She brings the A-team to every engagement she has, and she has many of them across many sectors. She's the author of a book called Workaholics, which if I wasn't such a workaholic, I'd probably make time to read. She's off quoted in the Wall Street Journal. And like I said, she has a pretty cool job. She's a high level matchmaker connecting the most remarkable people to the most remarkable organizations. Welcome, Marilyn. Thanks, Joan. Um, so I, I had the pleasure of looking at some of your most recent searches. I saw that Michelle Obama's person, Kristen Jarvis, just went up to work for Darren uh, for for Darren, who is the uh, this the CEO at the Ford Foundation, you have a really cool job. Well, it was also cool when we recruited Darren Walker to his first job in philanthropy at Rockefeller Foundation about mm, fourteen years ago. Wow! Yes, yeah. Well, Darren is a rock star at Ford, and uh, the the matchmaking at uh, between Ford and uh, the White House was a very good one. Um, it, it it seemed to me from looking at all those searches, I, I'm going to guess that you like your job. You know, it is the best thing that I think I've done professionally, and we've been doing it for about over eighteen and a half years. And the joy of as you put it, matching people with situations that transform the world is just fantastic. Um, so before we dig in uh, to what might be differing points of view about searches, why don't we just kind of start right at the top? Um, and let's talk about searching for a CEO of a nonprofit or foundation. Talk to me about what you see as the key to a great CEO search. Now, those are very, very different. And we may want to, depending on your guidance, Joan, leave out foundations, stick to nonprofits, because as you know, foundations do not have to raise money. Nonprofits yes. 
have to raise money. And that is the uh, sort of elephant in the room, if you will. So you know what? So I, I'm, I'm with you on this, Marilyn. Let's stick to nonprofits. Fair enough. And we are in that marketplace literally daily. We are working with search committees of boards, finding their ED, president, CEO, whatever term they use. I'll use them interchangeably because I do think it's the same job. And, you know, we started, I started with fundraising, Joan, because that's not an accident. I think for good or ill, that is probably among the top two to three skills that boards seek when changing leaders, choosing leaders. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. So I think everybody needs to know that board member, prospective executive director, et cetera, et cetera. And you are absolutely right. I think that begins with the composition of the search committee. Right. We, we don't have a magic size for that. We've worked with search committees that range to 12 or so, which is a little bit large. Wow. That we feels might, really big. We might call it a scheduling nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and we've worked with search committees as small as three or four. So we don't have a point of view in terms of size, which is the first thing people think about. Although I had one client once who said it had to be an odd number to break a vote, which, you know, I sort of love. Interesting. And, it, and people differ on whether the board chair should also be on the search committee, should also be the search chair, or also be ex officio. Happy to do it anyway. What's really important is the board knows what the bylaws say about finding such a person early on. We don't like to get to the end and then find they haven't done something about a vote of a full board or something of that nature. So it's worth paying attention to your bylaws. And it's worth putting on people who are your leaders in training, people you want to be more engaged, people who will make time for the search. That's my my key on who to pick. The um, And it's a pretty significant time commitment, isn't it? You know, I think that depends on the uh, on the word significant. It's not uh, it's not five minutes and done. Really, we find we're trying to put eight pounds of sugar into the five pound bag of time that search committees give us. I usually estimate that it's ten hours, and part of our job as search consultants is to spend a lot of time so that the search committee doesn't have to spend as much time. Right. And that is part of the advantage, which we will differ about what are the advantages about using a search firm versus uh, DIY, do it yourself. Right. But one of the things is it takes less time for the board if you have a search consultant involved. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely, definitely true. What does a high-functioning search committee feel like for someone like you? You say this is a this is a real rock star search committee. What what's what does it feel like? What what's the makeup of the group? I just sort of well, curious. I've had so many. I've had so many, and some of them have been twelve people, and some of them have been three or four. You know, a search chair who wants to lead is helpful to us because there are certain things in nonprofit land, if I may use that term, that have to to be peer-to-peer. You know, there's a limit to where your outside consultant can enforce, impose something on board members, but where a peer, a board search chair can. So we need one who wants to lead. That said, uh, we need one who's also, or we love one, who's also very good at achieving consensus, valuing consensus, and getting input rather than domination by one person, which I'm sure we've all seen occur. Yep. 
Yep. I think that's right. I think that, and I think also, and, and I suspect this is something you do, but making it really clear to the chair of the search committee, what the role of that chair is, is probably pretty important, right? What the role is and what the role isn't. And I think for the search chair, there's going to be a little more time involved than the average search member. And it's useful for that person to be, you know, the point person, we spend time together. We're communicating together throughout the search. I'm sometimes running up the flag to say one of those things, Houston, we have a problem. When, for instance, a lead candidate gets another offer or drops out for another reason, for instance. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that um, the, and I think this is true actually of board chairs as well, is the notion of, because I did a podcast recently, um, a, a Day in the Life of a Board Chair, which you can also find on iTunes. And um, we talked about the role of a board chair being very much a facilitative role that um, I jokingly said that I'd probably not make a very good board chair because I have way too many opinions and that part of your job as a board chair and in a, presumably as a search committee chair is also this sort of facilitative role of trying to bring all the points of view out and trying to drive to some conclusion rather than driving a specific conclusion that you have you know, in your own head. Well put, John, well put. And I've seen magnificent board chairs. I mean, I totally admire the people who serve on nonprofit boards. This isn't their day job. They do an awfully good job of it. It is a very generous contribution to the world out there. And choosing the next leader, one could argue, is perhaps the most important thing the board gets to do. Oh, I, I wouldn't argue with that in the slightest. Um, are there any patterns to the things that can go awry? Sure. Uh, I would say the top two might be having an unrealistic notion of what the proper candidate is going to cost you. And if you go out at the wrong price point, read too low, right. you will not have a very successful search. That is akin to me to pricing a home you were trying to sell too high. <laughs> My wife is a realtor. I know this world. And one of the best ways to lose a top candidate is for the top candidate or candidates to hear nothing for four weeks. Oh, I hear about that kind of stuff all the time. So I would just say the price point and the time, commitment, delay, gaps, that kind of thing are probably two of the issues. If there were a third, and this is something I think a search consultant helps the search committee hammer out, is what is being sought. Because if a candidate hears a disconnect among board members or committee members about what is sought, he or she might take that as a red flag about, ooh, maybe this is not the situation in which to walk, into right. which to walk. Right. If you do the go the DIY route, um, it feels almost critical that that group be staffed in some way in order to make the process work. I mean, there, I mean, clearly there are DIY processes that work, right? I mean, you can't reject oh, them completely out of hand. Clearly, but the staffing issue is interesting. And we will talk more, I'm sure, about the involvement of staff in such a search. We will. Uh, organizational staff. I would rather that somebody who doesn't want to hire a search firm and does want to essentially do it themselves, not rely on an internal staffer, but find a freelancer or a um, contract recruiter, because I think the issue is not, as you're saying, not about not having help, but having affordable help. 
And I think an outside person with expertise in recruitment slash search slash something else, even a researcher, a search researcher, is possibly a way to go. And some folks charge by the hour. These can be done not for free, but for probably a smaller sum than one is envisioning in the four figures. Right, right. So I'm suspecting in the blog post that I wrote a couple of weeks ago called how to hire a great executive director, um, that, that one of the things you might have taken issue with and sort of one of the reasons I think that some organizations go the DIY route is because of something that, that um, I tend to believe, which is, you know, I think the question I posed in my blog post is, what is the likelihood that you will hire somebody to run your organization who has never been to one of your events, who has never given it a dime, um, and is not, has not sort of illustrated that she or he has skin in the game for your organization. Um, and I'm, I'm going to guess <laughs> that you're going to take issue with me about that. Well, you know, there's so many things I admire about everything you say and write, but that one I think is too limiting. Right. But again, maybe we have represented organizations that are too are too well kept secrets. You know, they're under the radar. Part of what they want to become is over the radar. Yeah, so that's an interesting not, point. It's not unusual for us to begin a conversation with the prospect and say, I want to talk to you about a fabulous opportunity and you've never heard about it. I think it must be much easier to be a for-profit recruiter and you're always using names they've heard of and you're always promising salary increases. I'm often asking people to take a pay cut and go to someplace they've never heard of. Yep. So that being said, a person who's a contributor or a volunteer, that kind of thing, may have a certain degree of familiarity with the organization. Agreed. Right. May care about the mission. Agreed. Uh, may only know a portion of the organization. Mm -hmm. May be resistant to change. And maybe um, perhaps in some cases more of an advocate than an executive director. And I think those are potential downsides. So yes. I would not not include those people, but maybe they're contributing to one of your contrib your competitors in the space instead. Doesn't rule it out. Or maybe they've just never known that you existed. That is part of the delight of this job in that I learn about new missions, new approaches daily. I learn about brilliant solutions to pressing societal problems daily. And why shouldn't a candidate be, have that same advantage? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you and I are very much kindred spirits in that regard, is that being sector agnostic in my consulting firm, uh, also boutique where the A-team comes to play every day, is it feels like a privilege just to really understand not only what these organizations are doing, but to meet the remarkable people who are associated with them. I, I agree. And I think we're both saying the same thing. I think we're saying don't rely strictly on postings, listings, ads, that sort of thing. Because if that approach worked, my colleagues and I in search should be out of business. And right. yet we're, we're not out of business. Enough. And yet I agree. The Internet should have changed all this by now. And yet <laughs> it has not. No, it hasn't. Um, we're talking with Marilyn Maklowitz, a rock star headhunter for leading foundations and nonprofits. You can learn more about her at her website at maklowitz.com, and that's spelled M-A-C-H-L-O-W-I-T-Z.com. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, if I am interviewing a headhunter firm, there are a couple of good questions I should ask to make sure that I have the right fit. 
Oh, I think so many questions are worth asking. And I'd say the most overlooked question for me is what nonprofits are off limits for you? And what do I mean by that? Mm. I'll, use, I'll use a for-profit example. If you are Pepsi and you want an executive from Coke, you might think, well, I'll just use Coke's recruiting firm. Wrong. That should be a client off-limits issue. So I find that question we are not asked nearly often enough. And it's worth asking, what else are you working on right now that might compete? We're asked, do you have time to take us on? but not what would be conflicting and competing. And sometimes we withdraw strictly for that reason when someone calls us. They may not see it as a conflict, and it may not be, but we may feel that we would be looking at the same kinds of candidates for both. And I don't really like to be in that position of um, you know, King Solomon and deciding which client gets this terrific candidate. I, you know, I, All my clients should be getting the best candidates. I don't want to be in that position. So I think you ask them what kinds of searches they turn down. Interesting. What kinds of searches are their sweet spot? We all know what our sweet spot is and isn't. Um, and that may not mean what we've done the most. For instance, we're doing a GC, general counsel search, right now for a not-for-profit. And we have never done one before. But I always wanted to. Always knew we could do it. It's being proven out. And additionally, there are so many lawyers who want to be doing anything else or be a nonprofit. And I knew there was a huge pool. Right. So, um, so I think those are interesting things. I also am impressed really if a client, potential client checks some of our references. I mean, we have them. Why shouldn't somebody check them? Oh, yeah. don't take my word for it. Take someone else's word for it. What we do, whether we deliver what we promise or whether we don't. And I, I include all my colleagues in that. And there are many excellent search people. Yeah, I, yeah. The the extent to which people do not check references is always a little bit of a gab, kind of a mm-hmm. gobsmacker for me. I wanted to ask you about, um, and 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 this is a completely relevant question for my own um, professional trajectory, having spent fifteen years in the corporate side at MTV and then Showtime. Um, <clears throat> when you are um, looking for a nonprofit CEO and you're talking with someone who is attempting to make the leap from corporate to nonprofit, what are you looking for? We look for four things. We look for earlier experience in the sector. If it was the Peace Corps, Teach for America, uh, something they did before graduate school, maybe their first job after college. So an right. earlier experience counts. We look for more recent experience as a serious volunteer or board member, something that says they care about the sector, they know the sector. We look for, um, maybe it's only three things we look for. And the last (laughs) one we look for is some relevant courseware or something that shows they have done something more than just hatched this idea last night whether they volunteered with Taproot or some pro bono consulting that you can do while full-time in a corporate job, whether they've taken a class such as a finance for nonprofits or nonprofit accounting. These three things, earlier experience, board or volunteer, uh, courseware or other involvement, suggest to us the person is serious. 
I it I get a lot because of my own background and experience. I get a lot of people who pick, want to pick my brain about you know. Will you look at my resume? And I'm thinking about m- making the shift. A lot of people, you know. So you have this ba- you have baby boomers who are retiring, but you also have baby boomers who are, you know, hitting a certain point in their lives where they really want to make a difference and they're ready to cash out of corporate America. And and they're fascinating to me. So often they come and there's not a lick. I mean, not a lick of anything that you can grab onto that says that this person, um, you know, has some commitment to making the world a better place. And the first thing I say to them is, you know, did you know, join a board, sit on a board for a couple of years and make sure the fit feels right for you. A hundred percent agree. So uh, here's a question for you. I heard you say this earlier. So when I applied for my job moving over from Showtime to GLAAD, which was a gay rights organization in 1997, um, I had no fundraising experience at all. None. Like none. And, um, and I heard you say that, you know, you really look at fundraising experience. Um, if somebody doesn't have fundraising experience, I mean, this is very clear that the board took a leap of faith on me, which panned out quite nicely for all of us. Um, if you don't see fundraising experience, what do you... What's what do, a proxy? Yeah, that? what's the proxy? There are many proxies, and I'm less worried about that. Uh, but there has to be aptitude and appetite. So what's also important is that a person wants to do it. And I think this is true if you're going to be a university president. Let's not even kid ourselves about how much of the time someone is spending doing fundraising is that. No kidding. And and part of that is also going to be schedule and reality. Because I will say to people, you know, fundraising is a breakfast, lunch, and dinner exercise. And if they blanch, and I understand, you know, work-family balance, maybe it's not the right time for them to take that on. Because you can't always do fundraising in your office from 9 to 5. It just doesn't always work that way. So... Aptitude and appetite. I also count off-the-job experience, which might mean child school, your own alma mater. There are lots of ways to get involved in fundraising short of a full job change. In addition, if someone has been in the sales slash marketing uh, arena, I think those are fairly transferable skills. Yep, I think that's right. I, and and in the case of GLAD, which was uh, is an organization that is deeply committed to the power of the media and communications exactly. and messaging that my ability to um, eloquently articulate what GLAD did and why it was important um, to me is kind of probably three quarters of the job. And then you just actually attach and ask for a check to the end of it. And voila, you're a fundraiser. And additionally, to be reassuring, there are some organizations where the fundraising challenge is different from that of others. For instance, organizations that have tons of contracts or have tons of earned revenue from other sources may not have the emphasis on development of fundraising than an organization that relies 100% on funding. Moreover, organizations that are fully funded by their boards or where their board is a giant fundraising machine, again, may not quite need the same level in their chief executive. So I think it does vary across nonprofits and across points in time. For instance, we could all name nonprofits that perhaps have just sold their buildings 
and reaped um, a cash windfall that is going to seed anything they do in fundraising. Correct. We are actually uh, sadly out of time. Um, we've been uh, had the fortune of uh, the good fortune of talking with Marilyn Macklewitz, um, a rock star headhunter for uh, leading searches for foundations and nonprofits. You could find her at macklewitz.com. Uh, Marilyn, this has been a really fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I think our listeners um, probably took quite a lot of notes. Thanks again, John. You're welcome. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please check us out at Nonprofits Are Messy. Um, listen to some of our other podcasts. And if you like what you heard, um, don't hesitate to give us a rating um, or a review. Um, that's um, good feedback for us. So until next time, this is Joan Gary saying thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.